Software Engineering Daily has been around for almost two years. In this episode, Pranay Mohan and Erica Hokanson join me for a reflection on where we have been and where we are going. Pranay was the producer of Software Engineering Daily for the first year, after which he left to work as an engineer at Snapchat. Erica joined the show nine months ago to work on operations and ad sales, expansion plans, editorialism. The thesis of Software Engineering Daily has always been that serious, in-depth material about software provides value. Right now, we are a podcast about software engineering. We are planning expansion into a larger media company with video, a mobile app, desktop platform, more podcasts, more journalism. But in the meantime, we need to focus on the quality of the podcast. We want to keep that high as we gradually expand into other mediums. Pranay and Erica and I have crafted the vision for Software Engineering Daily, and we definitely want to hear your input. You can always send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We want serious and inspiring and technical content to be more widespread, and we know that you do too. So in this episode, you're going to hear a little more about that vision and just how we think about what Software Engineering Daily is. It's already been 500 episodes, and I'm even more excited about Software Engineering Daily than I was when I began. I'm looking forward to episode 1000. Welcome to episode 500 of Software Engineering Daily. Today we are going behind the scenes for a short interview with Erica and Pranay, who are the two people who have worked with me on Software Engineering Daily, getting it off the ground, getting it up and running. And so we're going to just chat today. Pranay is currently a software engineer at Snap, and Erica still works with me on Software Engineering Daily. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And big congrats to everybody here on episode 500. It's a big deal. Certainly is. And Pranay, you left Software Engineering Daily, gosh, it must have been around episode 200 or 250 or somewhere around there, mm-hmm. probably about halfway through. And so you left Software Engineering Daily because you wanted to become a software engineer yourself. And that motivation was hard for me to take at the time because it left me high and dry. But as time has gone on, I have totally understood and respected your decision. Describe the motivation to leave software engineering journalism and become a software engineer full-time. Yeah, I think this is a tough thing to kind of also wrap my head around because understandably it was a difficult decision for both of us and it always makes me feel bad when when I have to recollect splitting up and kind of deciding to go about my own thing and I think a lot of it was similar to how Preeti Kasireddy felt when she left venture capital to become a software engineer because she kind of expressed this sentiment of when she was at A16Z and seeing all these companies come in and all these talented founders and technical folks come in and pitch their ideas, there was a strong yearning within her to also embark on that journey. And I kind of got the same experience through being the producer of SE Daily. When I 
edited episodes and listened to all these fantastic people talking about their technical challenges, the interesting projects they were working on, I knew that I also had that spark to want to dig in technically and work on stuff like they were working on. And as much as I loved working on SC Daily, at the moment, the ability to be extremely technical and in the weeds with code was not available to us. So I think in order to fulfill that deep desire, I had to find another opportunity. And that's that's the kernel of motivation where it came from. It's always difficult to transition and kind of leave what you're doing because it can, as you mentioned, deal with interpersonal difficulties. But I think when you have a strong motivation to do something, you have to act on that source of truth. Well, and not to mention, I think you and I both intend to work together again in the future. And I think we left on terms that were basically, we're both, quote, entrepreneurial or whatever word you want to use. And we have desire to build things and change things. And whether it's collaboration within the same company in the future or collaboration across companies, I have no doubt that we'll work together again in the future. So it was bittersweet, but not terribly problematic, taking the long-term view of things. Totally. And we were friends for years before and we'll continue to be friends for years. So it's just more of when will we find our window again to work together. So I strongly believe in that. What's been the difference between reporting on engineering and actually being an engineer? Probably the the breadth of what I've been able to focus on has decreased. And that's been a challenge for me every day because when you delve deeper into the technical weeds, the details of what you're working on, you necessarily have to become more focused. You have to become an expert and deep dive into something. And for me, that's been web development and JavaScript. So I've really, over the past six months to a year, I've I've really gotten to know the guts of React and Redux. And these are concepts and ideas I was exposed to while working on SE Daily. But I was also exposed to microservices, Kubernetes, big data, Spark, a gamut of subjects. But as an engineer, you, you you cannot focus on that many things at once and be working on a product at the same time with a specific technical stack. So that's been the biggest trade-off for me. But it's also rewarding in the sense that as you go deeper down the levels of abstraction, you learn more about the trade-offs, you learn more about what are the applications of the subject you're working on, and that's not necessarily accessible to you when you're just researching and learning about it on a journalist's level. Yeah, well, you and I talked about this a lot, that preparing for episodes on Software Engineering Daily has been largely a matter of knowing the right question to ask rather than having to have the right answer yourself. And, and that, right. you know, it's it's good to know that that's the focus when you're doing interviews about software engineering. To You know you need to ask the right questions, but not being able to assimilate that information into a measurable skill, like being able to build a React Redux website, even though you've, you know, I can't do that, even though I've done 10 or 20 shows on React. You know, it's a little, something feels a little off about that exchange. Right, but I think it's also like riding a bike. I mean, you and Erica are both software engineers, and given the desire or the choice to go into it, you can you can do it instantaneously. It might take a little bit of time to ramp up in whatever specific field 
front-end, back-end infrastructure that you decide to go into, but it's readily accessible given the desire. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to get y'all's perspective on this as well. Like having been Mm -hmm. software engineers and transitioned into being journalists, do you feel like the the trade-offs are what I articulated or do you notice something else about it? Erica? Well, Pranay, there definitely are some trade-offs. I mean, the breadth versus depth analysis. I think about that a lot. I mean, I feel sort of like a generalist at this time, although I love doing reading and research and just being involved in the industry, what everyone's building, all the different players. But, you know, like you said, the opportunity is there to get back into coding and build some products. And we've talked about some side projects that we've had on the brain, Jeff and I, but, you know, over time, I think it'll just be following wherever the passion is. And right now, I think our passion, at least, is in bringing great technical content to the listeners of the podcast, you know, expanding what the podcast is, and how we can bring great info to people and educate people, and also reach developers and the technical community outside of podcasting. So Mm. like anything, there are trade offs, but I feel like we're in a great place. It's really exciting time. Jeff, what do you think? When Software Engineering Daily started to get a little bit of traction, I talked to Robert Blumen, who is, as frequent listeners to the show know, he's somebody who started Software Engineering Radio. And i that's the show that Software Engineering Daily was originally based off of. And I talked to him, and I was like, hey, I would love it if you joined me full-time and we did Software Engineering Daily together. And one thing he said was he wasn't sure that he would be able to report effectively as a software engineering reporter if he wasn't in the weeds day-to-day working on software products. I think there's some truth to that, especially when I started Software Engineering Daily. I did not have a lot of engineering experience, and you could hear that in the episodes. Pranay, I remember, the I think the first episode that you listened to of Software Engineering Daily, or one of the first episodes, was that episode with, with Matei Zaharia mm-hmm. about Spark. As much as I have wanted to listen back to that episode, I cannot stomach <laughs> going back to it because I know that before I did that show, I didn't know what Spark was, and after that show, I didn't know what Spark was. And just like you said, this breadth versus depth thing, if you go too wide and you don't have enough software engineering background, which I really didn't, I just had some internships and some jobs that I hadn't done a great job at, you know, that's that was my level of experience, and that was really not enough to do a good job of reporting. I would say since then, since I've started Ad4Prize and started working on some other software engineering projects, getting back into the thick of things, even though I'm not writing code, working with engineers directly on software products has probably really, it's had a lot of synergy with my reporting on Software Engineering Daily. Hmm. And I think basically what you're describing is, I think the, the, this begs the question, where is the foundation of software engineering such that you can cement that bedrock of knowledge and then move on to doing maybe tangential or corollary pursuits, but all be assured knowing that your foundation of knowledge is solid and that you can always draw upon it to help you with journalism or product management or design or whatever that secondary function is. And I think that my opinion is that that goalpost is moving farther back. Like it becomes Hmm. easier to cement that foundation of knowledge. And a lot of people would disagree with me. A lot of people believe that the 
technical foundations of software engineering is in computer science. You have to get that four-year degree. And we've talked about this a lot. But in practicality, the tools are becoming simpler. The languages are becoming more dynamic, expressive, and high level. So in all intents, it's actually becoming easier, I think, to cement that knowledge of being a software engineer and moving on to doing something else. And I think it has to be in order for our society to be able to employ more people in this field. As software eats more of the world, the ability to create software must get easier in order to bring more people into the fold. Otherwise, we're going to have this class of elite software wizards and then Luddites and people who who just interact with software but don't have an understanding of how it works. And that sounds to me like a less preferable world than the one where everybody's involved in making software. Completely agree. And you probably see this firsthand at Snap because it's a design company as much as an engineering company. And I bet that the designers that you interact with have such a technical proficiency and they have a sufficient technical proficiency to know how to design. It probably almost seems like engineering, the type of work that they do. So part and parcel with engineering getting easier, it seems like other roles are getting more technical. Well, I mean, how do you see the product design, the product engineering process changing from your vantage point at perhaps the most cutting edge software, well, at least consumer consumer software product in the world? Right. I can't speak exactly to what Snap does, but I will, I will definitely agree with you that a designer that even has a remote understanding of React and how components are designed can really assist that process of building mm. an interface. And I think also React has helped a lot with this because the concept of a component and being able to break out an app into these modular pieces that can also be designed in the same workflow really helps. So if we're on the same page in terms of the component, and I can talk about how the component loads and what the different interactions with the component are, then my work, my workflow with that designer is a lot easier than if they only speak on terms of user interface design, and then I have to translate that into even the most basic blueprint of how my app structure is going to be. So at any point when I'm working with a designer or product manager who has an exposure to the tools I'm working with, it be- our language becomes more in sync. And I think that's the biggest thing. The language of communication needs to be a level of te- technicality that everybody agrees upon. And I'm okay as a software engineer with making that language less technical. Like we don't, the designer does not necessarily need to know about React lifecycle or going further JavaScript garbage collection. But they should at least know enough to say that, oh, hey, I know that you're designing this nested component and I can think about how to make these components responsive when I'm designing it. Erica, you joined Software Engineering Daily full-time about five months ago. That was after you worked with me part-time specifically on the newsletter and some of the WordPress stuff. And your background prior to learning to code was English, editorialism, publishing, media production. And Pranay and I are now talking about how the design and the engineering 
roles are becoming the the relationship between the two are changing i think this is true also in editorialism and journalism where you see the organizations that have an engineering bent succeeding more companies like buzzfeed and then the new york you know the new york times washington post kind of working towards becoming more technical in their proficiency what's your point of view on this having spent you know a lot of your time in publishing and editorialism and so on before gravitating towards this more technical world working on the production of any kind of content has a somewhat standard workflow but in communications for any industry it's important to have a high level of knowledge and interest in that subject matter to present it in the best way possible and know the audience. So the more we immerse ourselves in the culture of programming and technical research and keep at least one foot in the pool as developers, the better we'll be at reporting on the tech industry and presenting accurate information to our audience. The, sh- the show's slogan that maybe hasn't been showcased much is the world through the lens of software And that's the view that we aim to publish the episodes from and for. For a few years before I came on board at Software Engineering Daily, I was learning to code and was listening to a lot of tech podcasts. So I was an early listener of your podcast, Jeff, and a huge fan before we started working together. I was so thankful for the technical depth and consistency you provided with the show. Combining my prior experience in publishing with my technical interest has been a wonderful way to both give back to our tech community and stay current in a quickly evolving world, and I do think that those combinations are important in the media. And Jeff, I also want to say thank you for this opportunity. Working on the show with you is an incredible honor. I admire your talents as an innovator, researcher, and interviewer. And thank you to all the fascinating guests who come on the show, as well as to the listeners and sponsors. The show's for you, and we welcome your input, so please reach out. As Jeff has said, quality content is our priority, and thank you all for taking us to episode 500. Describe some of the weirder, nuanced aspects of working full-time on a podcast. (laughs) Well... One great thing is just all the amazing letters that you get from the fans of the show who are learning so much every day. And that really keeps us going, I think. As far as the weird stuff, we get a lot of interesting requests from companies and individuals, different shows they want to hear about. And sometimes things don't quite fit into the scope of software engineering daily, but it's great to have so much interaction with the listeners and the fans and bring related content as a result. So I guess there are a lot of quirks just where we have our jobs are so multifaceted. I mean, we wear so many different hats and making this happen on a daily basis. And I think just the key has been adaptability and and open mindedness to those weird things when they come up. Mm. Renee, what did you find strange or contrary to your other work environments when you were working full time on the podcast? So for me, The weirdest thing to me still is how approachable people are. So when we were first starting out SE Daily, I was totally convinced that most software engineers, most leaders in their whatever specific expertise, whatever field they're working on, would not want to come on an obscure podcast for an hour and talk about what they're working on. But 
people really wanted to come on the show and they were excited about sharing what they were working on and having a conversation with you where you would surprise them with interesting questions and they would be challenged on the spot and they were they were encouraged to think about what they were working on and think about the complexities of what they were working on and then deliver it and give answers to a general audience who needed to be able to understand a really complex technical subject. And that kind of that insight into human psychology, knowing that people love to talk about what they're working on is, and people love getting challenging questions when the host is interested and, and genuinely wants to know more about what they were brought on to talk about. That was really interesting to me. I thought people were always more closed off, but that kind of reaffirmed my faith in people, in everyday people, because I think the fact that people become so passionate and interested in what they're working on is a sign that we are in a healthy world. We're in a world that is making technological progress, in a world mm. that is trying to inspire more people to become technical and share their knowledge. And I think that was the biggest takeaway for me. And in my career and professional life, I think I am more encouraged now to reach out to strangers and subject matter experts and get their opinion on something because I'm not as afraid that they will be walled off. Mm. But beyond that, the really bizarre things is the podcasting industry is super bizarre. I think you and I found that out. <laughs> just like the basic things that you would expect, like having podcast analytics and just having a level of sophistication, I think is still not yet there because it still has this like underground fight club type of feel. And that's what makes it so interesting. Like people, when you, my experience has been when I share with people that I used to work on a podcast, used to be a producer, their lies, their uh, eyes light up and they're like, whoa, <laughs> what did you work on? Like, that's awesome. I listen to podcasts all the time. And that conversation would never have come up unless I broke the ice by saying that. So I think there are a lot of people who consume podcasts, but it's just for whatever reason, they don't talk about it in the mainstream or it's just thought to be like an esoteric thing, like reading a weird book by yourself. So I'm still waiting for that shift in the podcasting industry where if you can even call it that it becomes an industry where people are more open about it and build tools that make the process more sophisticated. I think we're getting there, especially because we are, we're using this tool called Zencaster right now. Am I allowed to talk about that? Oh yeah, please. We did a show on it. Oh, cool. So we're using a tool called Zencaster right now, which when we started off, we were using Skype and oh, Screen yeah. Recorder. So the fact that this even exists and there are different Startups coming out, I know there's a new one in a YC batch called Breaker that's trying to make a the best iOS app for podcasting. And there's another one called Anchor that is trying to do podcast tidbits, like you send clips of sound to your friends and it's kind of like these micro podcasts. So I think we're kind of getting the bubbles to the surface of people exploring podcasting in different ways. And I, I really hope it leads to this explosion uh, really cool shows and a better listening flow for me so I don't have to go through iTunes all the time and manually download everything. So regardless of the medium, whether it's audio content or written content or video content, Pranay, when you and I were talking over dinner or on Skype or whenever we would have all these endless calls about what Software Engineering Daily was and what it should become, we saw opportunities in the software engineering media landscape or just the media landscape. What's the diff between what both of you 
want to see in in media versus where we are today in the media landscape overall i mean there's obviously so much turmoil in in media or at least there's all maybe there's always been turmoil in media but it's fake certainly news. gotten highlighted well fake news <laughs> or just like you know the the president attacking the media or whatever that means whatever the media means mainstream media Erica, why don't you go first? What do you think about the differences between where you would like to see media, the public discourse, and where we are today? Wow, that's a big question in the world of news. There are so many news outlets available. I guess people have so many options today. There are a number of different news TV channels, newspapers, apps, blogs. Then you have all your social media filters. I guess it'd be great in the future just for people to come to a conclusion that there is a source that they can trust and rely on and whose perspectives they align with or at least are learning from. So I guess this sort of taps into the whole fake news issue that came up with the past election, but I guess I hope where we're going is a place where Software Engineering Daily blossoms into sort of a more multifaceted media outlet and can maybe even compete with some of the bigger media channels. So I hope there'll be more continued dialogue surrounding all news, but particularly within software and even the podcast industry, and that people will have more discoverability better truth in reporting, and also a better chance to share and have a conversation about those things in an intelligent way. Exactly. I think I think Erica hit the nail on the head. I completely agree that the biggest problem is, is knowing who to trust or even which articles to trust. Because with news and with journalism, there has always been this kind of the main task of the the listener or the viewer to to kind of take in the information that the newscaster is giving them and then form their opinion about it. But my experience or my understanding of this is that previously there wasn't that metacognition aspect of it where you had to also figure out whether the the source that was providing you the information was legitimate or not. So you could take take the information and assume it was true and then figure out your own perspective on that information. But now there's that extra load of having to figure out, hmm, is this source legitimate? Am I, is this fake news? Should I try and get this verified by reading about it in another publication? And I think all of that causes a lot of mental fatigue when all I want to know is what is going on. And the fact that we are in a, in a world where trust between publication and its viewership or listenership is eroding is really challenging and add on to the fact that the publications are also being attacked from above by businesses or governments who are who have a vested interest in in making sure the publications are neutered then basically news outlets are being strangled from both sides and then you add on to the fact that the internet is making it making ad-based revenue completely change and forcing publications to change their business models and react to technological improvements and a different way of delivering news to a new generation. And you have this really uncertain ground that, that media as a whole is in right now. But the counterpoint to that is whenever there's uncertainty or a shift in the way things are working, there's a huge opportunity. And I think our collective and especially y'all being journalists 
the collective goal here is to make sure that that opportunity is not seized by unsavory groups. So you don't, you obviously don't want that uncertainty to be exploited by Russian propaganda, right? I mean, that being right now the antagonist in vogue. I mean, this is not to comment on any of the stories about Russia or fake news, but the goal of us as responsible citizens, people who want to make sure that truth gets heard and seen, is that we take these challenging environments and we use them as a foundation, an opportunity to create and to build back that trust and to get more viewership. Now, how to do that? That's that's something altogether that we can go into, but I think that's the biggest opportunity right there. And like Erica said, if SE Daily or whatever SE Daily grows into being is the source of truth and people really believe that and they are assured of that, they will come back. And that is how progress will be made. And what is the role of technologists here? Because as we've seen in different industries, whether we're talking about the mortgage trading industry, the derivatives trading industry, I should say, or ad tech, or any kind like agricultural engineering, when engineers do not take a step back and look at the bigger picture for the tools that they're building tends to make them myopic and it lets them get easily exploited by the people who are telling them what to do. So as engineers, so I guess there's two different questions. One, there's the question of what are engineering companies liable towards? What are their responsibilities in this changing media environment? And then what is the role of the individual engineer working at one of these companies? It's a tough question to answer because it's it has multiple facets, and I'll start out talking about the companies. I think the goal of any engineering company should be to make a great product, to serve some user and to generate revenue. That may not always align with the moral principles of truth and reporting honestly, but I think the, fu- the fundamental point at hand is what are the what are the shared interests between all the parties, the the listener or the viewer of some sort of information content, the person who delivers that information content, and then the person who provides revenue, be it an advertiser or a sponsor of that content. And because the landscape is evolving so quickly, I think there has to be some really innovative or more complex solutions to these problems. And I I was reading about something recently is called the BAT or basic attention token. And this is something that Brendan Eich and the the Brave browser team are working on. And the idea is basically you commoditize attention such that viewers or readers and advertisers are rewarded and their interests are aligned in making sure that when an advertiser pays for an ad, they are assured that people are actually viewing it. And then both the viewer and the the content creator are rewarded or paid out in a proportionate amount to the viewership. And I'm I'm totally butchering the concept of BAT because I'm I'm only familiar with it on a surface level, but I love the idea that we're thinking about these tokens or these coins built on the Ethereum blockchain to kind of align the interests of of multiple parties whereas previously, as you know, Jeff, that there's a lot of 
misalignment of interests in the advertising industry leading to stuff like ad fraud or botnets to exploit naive advertisers who will just throw money at anybody and hope that their ads are viewed or listened to. Mm-hmm. I didn't fully answer your question, but I think the gist of what I'm trying to say is the world is changing in terms of how people access and consume content. And to get to a equilibrium ground where things are done right, we will require some really creative solutions. And I think people are starting to realize that and work on it. But a lot of companies are still playing the game as it's always been played. Well, Erica, what are your thoughts? Do you have, you have any thoughts on this? I mean, so Pranay talked about the responsibility of the company. What I'm also curious about is the responsibility of the individual engineer. I have worked at at companies where zooming out, where I take the bigger picture, I say, well, this, you know, this situation that I'm working on, this product is, or this feature that I'm working on is pretty questionable whether this is actually helping anybody. It certainly helps the bottom line, but it seems to exploit somebody else. Is there ethical responsibility for the engineers there? I mean, there absolutely is. And that's just a question of you know, making it in the modern world, like your day-to-day survival concerns, and then stepping back and looking at the broad ethical repercussions. I mean, we both just recently read the Elon Musk biography, and Mm -hmm. one of the engineers in the book said, one of our dilemmas is that the greatest minds of our generation are working to get more people to click ads. And as you've seen in some of your ad tech discussions, I mean... That's so true. I mean, the bottom line for a lot of these companies is revenue. And at what point on a day-to-day basis, and with the engineers being so much in depth in their work, the feature they're working on within the product, you know, at what point in the day do they get to zoom out and see the big Google Maps perspective on the the right or wrong of the situation? So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think Every individual probably has to make that decision for their, themselves on a day-to-day basis, you know, reflecting on their work and is it ethical? Can they sleep at night with what they're doing? But I would still hope that a lot of these companies are working toward a good product, like you were saying, helping people, building a great and useful thing. So I guess we, and we've talked to so many engineers on the show. So what have you felt about that? I think it's it depends on what situation you're in. If you're an engineer who doesn't have a lot of options and you're having a lot of trouble finding a job, then if somebody offers you a job where it's like, yeah, you're building a botnet that we're going to sell to ad agencies so that they can send bots to the campaigns that they're running and get fraudulent clicks... You know, if you're desperate for money, hell yeah, you're going to do that. <laughs> I mean, you just, you know, and then you, and then that's fine because that's an interesting, difficult engineering problem. Just like the same people, you know, these, the people who, the people who, who tanked our economy in 2008, right? Like, I think a lot of them were probably people that were just in the industry for a long time. They believed in the efficient market hypothesis or they were fresh engineers out of school who were, 
from you know physics backgrounds and they just saw a really interesting system and they saw these beautiful market dynamics and they wanted to build something that interacted with that system and as they saw the interactions evolve and they saw the money just pouring in they said well let's amp this up this is really interesting this is working really well and then it took the economy tanking for people to to realize oh my god we built a monster I mean, it's, it's curiosity. It's human curiosity, and it just takes you to dark places if you don't regularly take a step back and examine what you're doing. And, I mean, that's we, we try to do that sometimes on the show. I mean, some people hate it. Some people do. Like, speaking of the people who write in, some people are like, stop talking about philosophy. Stop talking about politics. I don't care about that crap. Go back to talking about JavaScript frameworks. And But there's also... The opposite response, like as many people who write, well, actually, there are many more people who write in and say, oh, my God, I loved that episode where you just talked about the nature of reality. Like that was one of our most popular episodes was that show with Donald Hoffman, The Nature of Reality. And that was barely about engineering, but people loved it. On the other hand, we've done some shows about politics and we get some people writing in. They're like, stop doing that. So. I think there's a balance in talking about this, but I think engineers really need to think about it because there's just this narrative that is so toxic that, oh, you're just an engineer, you just do what you're told, and you just like follow the orders, you follow the spec. And this is something that engineers often propagate. Like I talk to engineers who work in ad tech, and I'm like, do you realize what you're doing? And they're like, yeah, I'm just an engineer. Like I'm not responsible for this. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's a complicated issue for sure. I mean, like you said, it's based on both the job market, maybe that individual's perspectives and their goals for the future. Yeah, it's complicated issues. But anyway, let's talk about some other themes from software engineering daily that we've covered. So, Pranay, the theme that you've become an expert in is, I think, JavaScript or probably the the intersection between JavaScript and mobile development. What is going on at the intersection of those two areas? So I think yeah, expert is definitely not the right word. I think as we as we all know, imposter syndrome is something that is an affliction for life as a software engineer. But I have definitely drilled deeper into front-end JavaScript, not necessarily on mobile clients, but on browsers. And I think the the bigger theme is a standardization or convergence of the JavaScript community upon a set of tools that we all agree upon. And I think a lot of this has it can probably be attributed to TC39, which for those who don't know is the group that decides upon JavaScript standards and figures out what are the next set of features to be introduced with the next iteration of ECMAScript. And I think this started largely with ES6 as a convergence point of people agreeing upon something. Because prior to this, there there were many disagreements, and some people wanted to use vanilla JavaScript, some people wanted to use CoffeeScript, some people wanted to use TypeScript. And there are all these tools floating around, and, and a lot of this resulted in this phenomenon called JavaScript fatigue, where things are moving so fast, people couldn't seem to agree upon anything, and web developers felt like basically the rug was being pulled out from under them every couple months like you would finally learn how ember worked and then angular would be released and then you'd be mm. you'd, you'd sigh and say okay 
one more time. I'll, I'll learn Angular. And then you learn <laughs> Angular, and then React is the new hot stuff. So then you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, because as any sufficiently technical person knows, it takes time to become a master of your craft, to learn your tools well. And I'm a strong believer that the specific tool you're working with doesn't really matter all that much, provided it's not like some super janky tool. But if you have a good tool, a lot of the benefits will be derived from you becoming better and more skilled with that tool. But if the rest of the community is deprecating your tool every two months, you're going to get exhausted because you're not given the time and the mental freedom and the, the joy of becoming better with any one thing. So I think that's been the biggest change. And it's a philosophical one that we can all agree upon certain tools to use and allow, afford ourselves time to become good with those tools so we can figure out, hey, what are the flaws with these tools? And then work on a kind of more methodical and patient and kind of relaxed way of improving those tools to accomplish our goals. And that's been really a joy for me because I feel like I got back into development with JavaScript at a time when things are kind of settling down. Mm. Right. There's some convergence, for better or worse, on React. Mm-hmm. What about React? So so some, you know, some stuff that feels futuristic to me. React Native certainly feels like where where is React Native going to stop? I mean, it's, it seems like it's going to keep going and it's going to get really performant and maybe it'll become the cross-platform tool of choice? I can't say for sure, but I think one really interesting anecdote here is that John Carmack, who works on Oculus and VR at Facebook, posted a couple tweets recently where he initially where he mentioned that initially he was skeptical of React VR, which is a React-based library to build VR interfaces. He was initially skeptical that this would be the right approach to help developers democratize VR development. But after he saw developers working with it and their speed of iteration and how quickly they picked it up, given that they were familiar with React from the front end or from React Native, he changed his mind. He thought, wow, this is actually a more powerful tool than I could have understood. And mm. I'm not sure exactly what that what the reason for that is. I think obviously React has some intrinsic principles that are easier to pick up on or easier to reason about. It's a functional paradigm of programming, which is often preferable to object-oriented and is in vogue right now. But I think also, it, it. I think my personal opinion is that it again goes to the point that familiarity is a huge boon for development. So if you can take something that you worked on in one domain and port it to another, that cross-domain sharing of knowledge is really... It knocks down the barriers to getting started and rolling on something else. So if since I'm at a sufficient depth in React right now, I feel confident that I can go into VR development and at least know a little bit about what I'm working on tomorrow. And I think that leads to a lot of developers being interested in React. Right. The ability to go from platform to platform as we get to augmented reality and virtual reality and developing for the TV, you know, you've talked about fatigue. But speaking of fatigue, you know, people are really burnt out from this disaster that we had with the mobile dichotomy, I guess, between, you know, Android and iOS. There's a whole generation of programmers who just didn't want to get involved with 
mobile development because they're just like, yeah, I'm just a web developer. Like, I, I can't do all of this stuff. And there's no reason it had to be that way. It should have just been one language. I mean, if we would have had some sort of consensus across the world, maybe, you know, maybe it was good to have this long period of pain and lack of consensus. And now we're just like, oh my God, let's converge, please, on something. Pranay, have you looked into WebAssembly at all? I've read a little bit about it, but I think as a JavaScript guy, I'm basically crossing my fingers and hoping it doesn't knock me out of a job. Okay. <laughs> right, no, so kidding. you're I, saying... I, I think I think WebAssembly is actually pretty cool. I want to spend some more time digging into it, but from what I've read and understood, it's still a ways away from practical use cases. But it's yep. definitely... Mozilla's done a fantastic job with it, and I think people are really excited about unlocking different languages on the client side because even though javascript is standardizing it's still for some people it leaves a sour taste in their mouth and i think a lot of that is due to the initial versions of javascript but i think generally if there's more freedom and more tools to work with despite what i said earlier about standardizing on tools i think consumer choice and developer choice is very fundamental because a developer should be happy and if they're not happy with what they're working with they should be allowed to change yeah all right well i want to wrap up by talking about where you both think we're going and what your plans are for the future because i think believe it or not i think the listeners are curious about the backstory of Software Engineering Daily, where things are going, and the people who are involved. So why don't you just both, let's close off by talk about what you think is changing in the world and how that is informing your goals for the future. Erica, why don't you go first? Well, I think what Pranay was talking about with cross-platform development is incredibly important. I feel like we're way behind on this. So I hope to see a lot more of that. And how that will apply to software engineering daily is that we'll see better mobile interaction, better IoT applications, discoverability of content. And as far as the business goes, I'd love, and we've talked about this quite a bit, Jeff, I'd love to see us grow into a more multifaceted media business. This year, we, we rolled out our first video on microservices, and that was really fun. And I think we can either grow into a podcast network or perhaps put on some remote conferences or even get into the ebook or audiobook realm or grow into more of a, a news publication. So there's so many options there. And I think we'll just have to see what our capacity is, what people we could bring on to help with that and formulate a plan about our own our own peak. But there's so much opportunity right now within the media and a lot of great tech outlets and inspirational figures to draw inspiration from. So I'm really excited about where we're going. Great. Pranay? Jeff, I definitely want to hear your perspective on this as well, because I think SE Daily, like Erica said, has a lot of opportunity right now, especially to diversify from just being a podcast and capture more of the generalist market for tech content and tech media. There's recently some some mainstream media outlet, New York Times or whatever, covered a piece on, on UBeam. And the former vice president or some, some guy who was a higher up in engineering at UBeam basically laughed off the article as, as being basically gullible journalists just buying into something that a tech company said. And I think 
SE Daily is, is really positioned and has the opportunity to be that voice that can call bullshit and say, no, that's not true because I'm an engineer and I know that's not how it works. So give me the truth. And yes. I'm, I'm totally excited about that becoming, first of all, because of technology eating everything, that becoming more of a, a product that is demanded and also something that more people are going to be technically skilled and be able to devour content at a higher level of technicality. So I'm super stoked about that and want to hear your perspective for closing thoughts. But my perspective on the world is that I, I think we're at a really kind of weird time of foment that I, I think the current events over the last half a year, a year have, I think, beyond just me, have confused a lot of people. And yeah. I think it just owes to the point that our technological sophistication is growing faster than our ability to keep up. And our old models of the economy and about employment and about how people derive and provide value in the marketplace is being undermined. And this kind of rude awakening is really destroying a lot of lives to be candid. A lot of people can't get employed anymore. A lot of people can't retrain and become more technical to keep up with complex service level job requirements. And I have a lot of compassion for the people who are suffering from this because it's easy to look at things from a black and white technical perspective and say, yeah, we're becoming more advanced. More people have longer lifespans. More people have toasters and microwaves. But a lot of people are suffering because they don't have a purpose. They're not able to provide a value to the economy and provide for their families. And I, I think our collective responsibilities is to figure a solution to that, whether that is the basic income like Zuckerberg and other people have posited, or some other different form of vocational training, whatever that is, we have to come to a consensus as technologists beyond just looking at our technical work and saying, gee, that's interesting. We need to think about their larger impacts on people and have some compassion for what the average person is going through. And it's, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a vague thing to say, but it's because it's a big open question that I think entrepreneurs should be very excited about addressing. It's it's a very scary but also exciting time for the world. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, talking there, you just reminded me of all the conversations that we had when you were full time a part of Software Engineering Daily, and I think we shared, you know, we share a vision for more technical content that takes the consumer of the content seriously and also brings a level of seriousness, technical seriousness. I think what you and I both shudder in response to is the type of writing that treats the reader as an idiot or that makes the, you know, the journalist is comfortably naive. I mean, you talked about the, the U-beam example you know that just happens with gen with with people who are generalist reporters. There's you know it's it's, it's almost unavoidable because there's only so many journalists in the world, and you can't be an expert in everything. A lot of the shows I've covered, like I do, listen back to, I'm like, wow, I did a terrible job. I basically presented misinformation. You 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 do the best you can. Mm -hmm. The best example, you know, you're talking about the U beam example. The what I was thinking about was there was a story about the meth bot story like the oh we finally discovered ad tech with the meth bot story i don't know if you guys saw that but this was a big story in the new york times about a botnet that was making millions of dollars a day 
and it was a puff piece for White Ops, which is an anti-ad fraud. Or it's a, it's a, a mm. bot detection company, and it's just like a puff piece right. for this company. And and like New York Times can't identify that. Like they can't realize that they're being duped into writing a puff piece about an anti-ad ad fraud company. And you know, like this the whole ad tech stuff. Like this is honestly, strangely, this is one thing that's really like motivated me to realize, oh my gosh, there is so much opportunity for oversight in the technology world because the ad tech is just this big ball of fraud. It's this big Wall Street 2.0 with no regulation and brands are losing tons and tons of money and fraudulent, sketchy people are wasting their time building systems that are doing nothing but serving ads to bots ultimately. And you know, it's so easy for me to get riled up about it, and I feel like that's a good sign that there's something here. There is a glut of misinformation, and I think the the broader case is that there's a glut of misinformation around technology because the people who should be reporting on it can't report on it, and the technologists that are building these things have learned that, that they can bluff the journalists. Right. And so it's just... And, and I, think, just like, I think it's like it's it's emperor's new clothes all over again. And yes. somebody's got to yell out the emperor's naked. Right. And yeah. that I think that is that would be so amazing if SC Daily can fill that role. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not just software engineering. Like you and I talked a lot about, you know, you studied chemical engineering and we would talk about chemistry and you would always tell me stuff about chemistry that blew my mind and would just like scare the crap out of me. And it's just like... Well, you know I'm excessively paranoid about that, but I agree. But there's actually no way to know if you're excessively paranoid because we don't have the science to disambiguate what are the causes of diseases in our world. Right. But I think some amount of litmus is necessary. And I think that's the point that you're making that nobody can ever know for sure. And like you said in, in previous episodes you may have unwillingly disseminated misinformation. But I think the idea is to hold yourself to a really high standard of reporting. And that requires training yourself, becoming more technical, and working hard to make sure that you revise past misinformation, that you constantly keep up to date. And that is challenging for folks who are not, who don't have that technical foundation, but you and Erica do. And I think you guys are doing a great job and the key is to as the audience keeps growing as the formats keep changing that you guys hold to those core principles of honesty and working hard to keep up to date with this rapidly changing technical landscape and knowing that every step of the way you're going to be the shining beacon for technologists and increasingly general audiences in reporting on the technical world and to be able to call truth where you see truth and lies where you see lies. Let's hope so. Well, I'm going to let both of you get back to your beautiful Sunday. Pranay, it was really, really good to catch up with you, and I look forward to seeing you more in the future. I hope you come back to San Francisco soon. I hope so, too. I look forward to working with you and with you, Erica, in the future. And I, I mean, this is... Like, I, I strongly believe this is a super exciting time, and there's a lot of cool stuff to work on. Great. Well, thanks, Brene. Thanks, Erica. Thank you both. It's been great working with you. Awesome. Great. <laughs>